and welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's best murder she wrote podcast. I'm your host, Bridget Keys. And I'm TJ West. And we are going to talk today about season two, episode six, Reflections of the Mind. All right, TJ, you want to start us off? I shall. So in this week's episode, Aunt, uh, Jessica goes to visit a good friend of hers named Francesca Lodge, who is suffering from what we can basically call like a mental breakdown. She is has been institutionalized briefly by her significantly younger husband named Scott. And she appears to be hearing and encountering the ghost of her long dead husband. But as it turns out, she's being gaslit, which I use that <laughs> term deliberately and jessica managed to to uncover who has been responsible for all of this bad behavior as well as the murder of scott in a tragic car accident who as it turns out is francesca's daughter and her accomplice the gardener who was apparently a musician at some point in the past it's a pretty thorough summary you know what i'm kind of glad that we don't do the 15 world summaries anymore because i feel like we get a lot more out of the way up front I do. I agree with you on that. And I feel like that was a pretty good summary on my part. It was a really good summary. Well, it's a good episode. I mean, that's the thing. Like, it's easier to summarize the really tautly woven episodes than it is some of the ones that get a little bit derailed by their own plot <laughs> yeah. contrivances. Like, this one, as it was in our preceding episode, is a very well-constructed and very well-written episode that leads you, I think, quite efficiently and effectively through the various stages of the plot. It's really good. And um, last week, we both really liked the episode. And we talked about how many nods it had to Lansbury's personal life, and to her first Hollywood movie, The Picture of Dorian Gray. I guess it was her second. (laughs) The casting went back and forth. And the release went back and forth. So I can never remember which actually came out first. But um, this week, it's obviously you use the word gaslit, because obviously, this plot harkens to the movie she was in, Gaslight. Um, The whole idea that someone is trying to make a woman feel like she's going crazy. And, you know, it also, I think, calls back to My Johnny Lies Over the Ocean in season one. Yep. When her niece, it feels the same, like she's having a breakdown. And just as in that episode, Jessica is like, I don't know what's going on, but you're okay. We're going to figure this out. Um, She is nothing but supportive and understanding. And there's so many times in this episode before we know that she's actually figured out what's going on when we just get these little looks from her like, this shit is not adding up. You know, like, I'm not buying what everyone Mm -hmm. else in this house is telling me is wrong with my friend. And I, I, TJ, it was largely a writer's room of men you know, so I doubt they intended to make any kind of like feminist statement with these Mad Woman episodes, but it's twice now that we see JB like standing up for women who are being basically abused and exploited and manipulated by all of the people close to them. And, and I just think there's something really powerful about that, right? She's believing women when no one else will. I agree. I mean, I think there's a great deal to be said, as you pointed out, like about the feminist ethics of, I almost said the Golden Girls, of Murder, She Wrote. That show too. Um, <laughs> that, that, yes, that show too. Um, in an unexpected place. I mean, as with the Golden Girls, which is also not necessarily the place where you would expect a feminist ethics to emerge explicitly, just on paper, but in part because of Lansbury's performance, but also how well she has developed JB as a character, it makes sense that she would be so deeply empathetic and, you know, and work over time to support her female friend who is being basically manipulated 
and just basically dismissed by everyone else who just assumes that she's crazy. Yeah. And so I like that. I I think that, like you said, there is a, a the the feminist ethics of Munishra is really deeply interwoven into its substance, and it emerges most clearly in the episodes like this. So I, if we want to stay on the plot a little bit, um, and then we'll go to guest stars. Um, I think what's interesting to me about this plot is that, um, you know, we knew it wasn't the husband manipulating the wife in My Johnny Lies Over the Ocean because the husband was dead. But I think the logical thing to think here is that Francesca has married a much younger man and he seems really shady. <laughs> and so like even in his first conversation with Jessica, I wrote down, Scott's a lying liar and I don't believe a word he says, you know. Mm-hmm. So he's telling her all these things that Francesca's been doing and mixing up and getting confused and having problems with. And, you know, they're driving home from the hospital and he almost hits a hitchhiker. And uh, they don't even check to see if the guy's okay. So I'm like, I know. I was like, I hate what? this guy. Yeah. He's like, well, I, I drag race a lot as a youth. So that's what explains my phenomenal reflexes. But I was just like, dude, you almost ran over somebody. Like, yeah. you're not going to go check on him? Stop the car and go check that he's okay. I know. And nobody bats an eye. It just seems very strange. Yeah. And so obviously the clue there that he was a drag racer is supposed to make us think that when he ultimately dies of a car accident a couple of scenes later – that's pretty suspicious because he was a good driver. But um, it, it it's all intended to make you feel like he didn't actually die. Like maybe he staged his death so that he can keep tormenting Francesca or something. Right. And of course, that's not what happened, right? Because we ultimately learned they've done an autopsy and he was drugged and that's how he had the car crash. And there's no way that he could fake unless he was really good friends with the sheriff, right? There's, how could he fake like the autopsy and, right. and all of this so if it's not Scott, then it has to be someone else in Francesca's inner circle. And that really leaves us with her daughter and the maid. Right. And the maid, of course, is played by Esther Roll. And I just want to take a second to say that Esther Roll deserves better than having to play a maid again. I had the same thoughts. Esther Roll, of course, is from Good Times and Maud, where she played the same character who was a maid. Right. Yeah. I was like, I was like, come on, where she wrote? Like, really? You're going to put... Esther role like in in a relevant not even it's not even like an interesting character like it's not there's not a lot to the character like when I saw the name in the credits I thought oh good we get to see Esther role like I love seeing her but there's not a whole lot for her to do yeah. as a character and I feel like it was a waste of her really considerable talents as an actress I feel like the whole function of her character is like we don't know how much she knows about what's going on and how involved she is in it. Right. You know, so at one point, Francesca thinks her pet canary is dead um, and she has a breakdown and Jessica says, can you go remove the canary for her? She's really upset. And she comes back with the cage and a bird that's flapping around. She's like, the canary's fine. So it's like, oh, maybe she's in on this, you know, plot to drive Francesca crazy. While it was a great episode, I felt like hers was probably one of the least well-developed parts of it. But I, and I, I know, but I'm saying I think that's intentional, right? Because we okay. we need to suspect that she could be part of this because otherwise it has to be Cheryl. Right. And, and that has to be a surprise. And so ultimately the surprise is that it's it's Francesca's own daughter who is torturing her with like tape recordings of her dead father. I mean – She's having this guy dress up as her father and appear in Francesca's bedroom. I mean, this is really sinister stuff. Yeah, it's pretty bleak. I mean, you know, we tend to sometimes critique the show's motivations for the murder as not being particularly well done. But this one felt 
authentic and felt very sinister. Like, especially when it's revealed that she was the one who did it. I was like, oh, yeah, I can see that. Like, it made sense to me as a viewer. I was so horrified. I was too. It's genuinely disturbing. I'm so sad for Francesca. I mean, at this point, she's lost two husbands and a daughter, essentially. I mean, this is horrifying. And so the reason that we're given at the very end, we just get like a couple of lines of explanation that because Cheryl had once also had a breakdown, um, Francesca had put all of the money in trust in her will. So if Francesca dies, Cheryl doesn't actually get money. It's in trust until she's 35. So the plot to drive her mad was that she would obviously get access to the money immediately. Right. A horrible thing to do to your mother. I mean, just this horrifying. Right. But it is the stuff of which rich melodramas such as Gaslight and this episode of Murder, She Wrote, are made. Like, it is rich, you know, fraught domestic territory that is perfect for these kinds of episodes. Maybe that's a good segue, then, into the guest star, who I think is the sort of centerpiece of this whole episode, which, of course, is Anne Blythe as Francesca. If anyone is familiar at all with Hollywood melodrama, they will know that Anne Blythe starred in one of the best melodramas of Hollywood history. Mildred Pierce. Mildred Pierce, Pierce, which is arguably also film noir. It's film noir slash melodrama. In which she plays the... The horrible daughter. Yep, the horrible daughter who doesn't necessarily like gaslight her mother, but definitely does everything she can to subvert her mother's authority and basically treats her terribly from the beginning to the end, despite the fact that her mother loves her unconditionally for some unknown reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Depends on whether you read the novel or watch the movie or the later miniseries as to why Mildred continues to love her daughter. Right. But I think Anne Blythe's Vita in the 1945 movie is, she's just, she's radiant, she's charismatic, she's beautiful, she's young and vibrant. And so it was really interesting to see her here again as the older woman who's being tortured by her young, vibrant daughter. Mm-hmm. And also, Anne Blythe, like Linus Johns from last week, is still alive. Yeah, this was her last role. Really? That I did not know. Yeah. I mean, good for her. It's a good way to go out. Like, if I was a, if <laughs> I was a, if I was a grandam of Hollywood, I'd be like, you know what? Murder She Wrote. That's that's it. Like, that's where I would. I, I'd be okay with drawing the line. Murder I, She Wrote, and I get to play that I'm having a breakdown. I mean, because that's like that's good stuff. For it is an good actor. stuff, and she really acts the hell out she of it. She plays it so sub- she convinces it. She, I was gonna say, she plays it convincingly. She sells it. Mm-hmm. You really feel her pain and her confusion. Like, I know I this isn't what's actually happening, you know? And, like, you can just – you can feel it. Right. And, I mean, there's that moment, for example, when they think that she's the one who dosed his alcohol with barbiturates. I think it's barbiturates, right? That she's on for some – you know, for her own mental health. She's like, I didn't do it. Like, I promise you. I'm like, And then there's also a similarly, like, wrenching moment when she accidentally calls out her former husband's name yeah. that she means. Scott, she's like, I didn't say Ross. I said Scott. And it's just so heartbreaking, like, as she's sort of unraveling in real time as yeah. we're watching. And that's a very, you know – Difficult thing to watch, particularly in 2022 when gaslighting is so much more part of our cultural parlance. Like, yeah, it's, you know, it's a lovely moment in the sense of how much she's able to bring to her performance in that role. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, that's that's the power of that old Hollywood acting. Like it sticks. It sticks with you. It's so great. 
So we have, in addition to her, we have um, Esther Roll, who we've talked about. And then we have some people who are just like sort of TV famous. They go on to have like, you know, one-offs here and there and long-storied careers, except the guy who plays Carl the Gardener, who is actually a musician known as Carson Todd, who is scheming with the daughter to make mom go crazy. Um, He is played by an actor whose name is Wings Hauser, which is just like, can we just take a second to appreciate that name? (laughs) Yes, that is an interesting name, I have to say. And he does four total episodes of Murder, She Wrote, so he might feel familiar to you. Okay. The other thing, Teej, is like, you know, I mentioned the canary. And so last week we had the little yellow bird in the cage because Lansbury was singing the song she sang in The Picture of Dorian Gray. And this time we have yet another little yellow bird in a cage. And it's actually intended not to be a reference to Lansbury's film career, but to be a metaphor, right? Like, obviously, it's a metaphor for how Francesca is trapped in this cage and she's beautiful but going mad. And then when the bird dies and she's screaming, it's such a – that's a baby Jane nod, right? It almost certainly is a baby Jane nod because it's – you know, anytime you have a movie where a woman is being driven crazy, there's a dead bird. Every time. Almost. It's like it's a a shorthand of signifying – you know, so we're talking about the movie um, "Whatever Happened to Baby Jane" with um, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. A brilliant movie, another brilliant twisted melodrama. Oh, it's so great! Yeah, but also, I mean, since we're talking about TV famous, we also had to pay attention to Martin Milner, who plays Sheriff Bodine. Yes, of course. And I mean, I love him as an actor. My parents, as I was telling Bridget in the pregame. Often watch Adam Twelve, which is a police procedural from the late from the sixties and seventies, in which he plays one of the two main characters. And that show, I mean, I watched it as a in high school because my parents watched like Nick at Night all the time, and now they still watch it. He's quite an he's a very charismatic actor. Like he's has this kind of pleasant boyish good looks. Even he's like in his fifties at this point in this show, and he just has a sort of pleasant demeanor that I think allows yeah. him to be the kind of cop figure that is, you know, not necessarily like amenable to Jessica's uh, meddling, but ultimately comes around to her way of thinking and actually helps her solve the murder. And helps her set up Cheryl so they can catch her. Yep, exactly. So I appreciated that we got him. And of course, the scene, the mo- the episode ends with him, you know, theatrically sneezing because he's been out in the rain, which, you know, is funny. And he plays it very broadly, which I really liked. I didn't understand the humor of that. So, like, obviously, he's been out in the rain, and then he comes in and helps catch Cheryl and Carson. Uh, And then Jessica is, like, helping him get warm by the fire and drying off his clothes. I don't know why they just didn't put him in the dryer, because it's not 1920. We have dryers. But he's, you know, they're drying out by the fire. And then he starts to sneeze, and she's like, hold your nose. Don't give into it. And I'm like, I don't know. Why can't he just sneeze if he needs to sneeze? It's right. very weird. And so for the whole like scene, it's like he's about to sneeze and they're like, oh, oh, oh is it going to interrupt now? Is it going to Why? Yeah, I, I was also reflecting on this. It's that TV shorthand. It's like, oh, my God, if you stay out in the cold weather, in the cold rain, you're going to get a cold immediately. It's like, <laughs> right. I'm pretty sure that's <laughs> not how virology You'd probably works. probably be freezing like, tonight I've, and shivering, but I think you wouldn't be sneezing tonight. And there's not also, as we know, there's no intrinsic connection between like getting rained on and, you know, catching a cold. Like, But anyway, I digress. But that's this TV shorthand. But I, but I still don't understand, like, why is the goal for him not to hold his sneeze in? Like, why is she like, don't, don't give in to it? 
And then even the doctor is like, do you know that colds are mostly psychological? It's like, I don't understand why the guy isn't allowed to just sneeze. I don't know why people are giving bad health advice that saying that colds are, are primarily psychological because that is just... Seth Hazlitt wouldn't be having that shit, let me tell you. He would. He'd be like, this is... I, I can well imagine... We needed a Seth Hazlitt colds at that moment. Colds are caused like, by viruses. <laughs> that was my <laughs> William Wyndham impression. That's actually quite that was better than I expected. I have to say, I was I didn't have high hopes, but that was actually quite good. I was trying to do like you know he always like scrunches up his shoulders and claps his hands, you know. Yes, I miss Seth. I'm glad we'll see him hopefully next week. <laughs> I just don't. Why can't the guy just sneeze? Why is it so bad for him to sneeze? That is, it's I, just like the I whole no scene answer. is trying to build up humor because we've had 42 minutes of like really dark, dark stuff. And it's like, I this is not, why is that the thing you guys went for to be funny? Ha ha, he sneezed. Right. I, just not, I don't get it. <laughs> well, maybe we can switch gears a bit. That's TJ speak for like, kid, you've dwelled on this thing that is not interesting for way too long. <laughs> That is correct. So why don't we talk about, at least I want to talk about the, one of the more meaningful exchanges that happens between Jessica and Francesca, where they're talking about their spouses and how, you know, because mm. Francesca basically wants to check with Jessica to make sure she doesn't sort of hold her in contempt for dating, for marrying a much younger man. And, yeah. and of course, JB doesn't because she is that kind of person. She's like, you know, you two seem perfectly happy why would I pass judgment? But then she also has this yeah. really interesting moment where she's like, you know, sometimes it's been, I think she says six years since, uh, since her husband passed away. And then she says something to the effect of, you know, I, sometimes I'll still look at his chair and I'll start to say something. Yeah. And I was, it's, you know, it's one of those grace notes we occasionally get when she's referring to, you know, her, to her previous, or her deceased husband, where we really get to this sense of how much his death has impacted Jessica. Cause, you know, she's mm. still so vibrant and lively and she lives a full life. But I like these moments when, you know, we get the sense that, yeah, he did mean a lot to her and that, you know, it's also a testament to like the way that grief works. Like, even though years may pass, there'll be times when you just, your brain forgets yeah. that the person doesn't exist anymore. Like I still have moments when I think, Oh, I got to call grandma today. Like, I, or I want to tell yeah. my grandma about this or something, you know, and it's, I, I think those are the moments that murder. She does really well because it doesn't use them all the time. It just uses them sparingly and that allows them to have greater impact when they do happen. Yeah. And just, and not that you necessarily forget, although that does happen. I'm totally with you on that. But also just that even if you remember, it's, it's not, I don't know what I'm trying to say. The, the person you've lost is such a part of your life that you know they're dead, but it's still as if they're there. It's like both at the same time. Yep. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's not exactly muscle memory, but it's just like your body is so. We actually talked about that to- in grief counseling that it is. It's like, it's. You have to retrain the muscle of your brain. And that's part of the trauma of grief. Yeah. And I mean, for Jessica, it's clear that, you know, Frank's presence in her life is so deeply ingrained and after so many decades together that it's, you know, it's it's impossible to ever fully forget that. You know, it makes me wonder because she's like, I wouldn't begrudge you for marrying Scott, even though, even though the four of us were dear friends and I loved Ross, because that's not, as you say, the kind of person that Jessica is. It kind of makes me wonder, like, are we supposed to ultimately think Scott did marry her for her money? Or, you know, are we supposed to think that he actually really did love her? And so it's a tragic end to their relationship that he was killed. 
I mean, after the revelation that he's not actually the one who did it, which I was, you know, just on cards on the table, I was drawn in by that. Like, that's who I assumed the murderer was. I think that once it's revealed that it's the daughter who's responsible, at least from my point of view, I read it the way that you just alluded to, that he did really love her. And that's what makes this so tragic, is that she lost one of the people who did actually care about her. Mm-hmm. And now she's kind of left alone. So that's the way I interpreted it. Which is funny because we would like we would typically think like, oh, a 60 year old woman and a much younger man, he probably married her for her money and he probably doesn't actually love her, which we've seen before, right, in the season two premiere. And meanwhile, she has a daughter who like actually does love her. And this episode really flips that, right? Like the daughter is the one who doesn't care and is just using mom for the money. And maybe the husband actually really did care about her. Yeah. And that's what makes the whole story just deeply tragic. Like poor Francesca is now left with utterly bereft. I mean, she still has JB who's going to take her back to Cabot Cove, which I think is nice. Sets up an interesting story that's never pursued, obviously. It would be like, (laughs) what would happen if Francesca became like, you know, JB's live-in companion, that would be a Ooh. You know, an interesting That's bit of, a fun spin-off pilot. Yeah, exactly. A little bit of fan fiction, perhaps. <laughs> so get to work our scribes out there in our fandom land. Um Oh yeah, I do want to hear that fan fiction. What if though, because we know every time Jessica's in Cabot Cove, there's a murder though. So what if this poor woman is totally broken down? She's going back to this small town in Maine to heal and rest because it's a small town in Maine. But Jessica arrives, a murder is going to happen. Like, how much more torturous would that be for her? Mm. Yeah, there's an interesting story here. I think we need to... Somebody needs to write that. Yes. Anyway, I didn't want to get too far off the field. But, I mean, that is part of what gives this episode its pathos, is that poor Francesca literally loses everyone that is important to her, except for, arguably, her doctor. (laughs) And Jessica. Right. And the and Esterol, like you know, so she has. Okay, so see, we've a, she's a big circle. Now. Yes, but I mean, but none of these care like carry a quite the emotional weight of you know your husband and your daughter, your daughter, you know, who yeah. has undergone a significantly horrifying campaign to drive you crazy. Yeah, and I mean that's what I appreciate. I mean, I appreciate how sinister this episode is, not just in its narrative content, but its presentation, like how it's filmed, how it sort of immerses us in this sinister atmosphere. The music, like the there's mm-hmm. the motif that plays repeatedly. That's the music box that her that Ross bought Francesca that plays in the background often as a sort of with a sinister overtone. And I think, yeah. and obviously the like the secret chamber that you know Francesca sealed up his bedroom when he died which is a very victorian sort of gothic it's really gothic i loved it i was mm-hmm. like ah oh, yes the sealed up chamber like that's very i was like it's also gaslight yeah. right like someone's up in the attic moving around and we know we're hearing things and people are saying no and like francesca knows someone is in that bedroom and they're like no it's sealed right and i mean i have to say that like the the, re- the replaying of ross's voice is truly one of the most horrifying things i can imagine like when jessica discovers the recording in this in the chamber that's been sealed up because she's clever enough to realize that there's a secret entrance in the the master bath and she discovers that recording it's just so macabre like and it's again it's very gothic in its overtones and it's just sort of when you really pause to think about it you're like my god what a monstrous thing to use a voice recording to haunt your parent like it's just i don't know there's something deeply this or really upsetting about the whole thing yeah because i think what's so awful about it is like is cheryl not also traumatized by her father's death 
Like she has no grief or concern or pain listening to her father's voice. You know, that she is so apathetic to his death that she can just play a recording of him saying, I love you, which was originally for her, right? She can play it on the phone to her mom, torturing her mom with like no compunction. Like it, even if you hate your mom, like did, did your father's death not mean anything to you? I mean, it's really gross. Yeah. I mean, that's part of what makes this particular murderess so chilling is that she seems to show no compunction about what she's done. The only, the closest we mm -hmm. get is, you know, she cowers in fear, you know, whenever they, she thinks that Scott has actually survived the car crash and has now come back. So I want to, oh, because, uh, so uh, yeah, so maybe you're talking about the big climax. Uh, I want to talk about that before we run out of time because yeah. I think it's worth describing because it's it's really good. And it's like I, one of these episodes of Murder, She Wrote, where you actually feel a little bit scared. Mm -hmm. the, uh, but I also just want to quickly get out there because um, I don't want to run out of time. Like there's a mini poodle in this named Ruff, but he only appears halfway through the episode and then becomes like important because he digs up clues. And it just makes me wonder like all these other times Francesca thought she was going crazy and people are breaking into her house. Where was the damn poodle? Like he would be barking if he thought there was an intruder. So you guys, whoever wrote this clearly doesn't have a dog, but I digress. Um, okay. Climax. Let's talk about this because it's so good how Jessica sets them up. Yes. So it it's, well we've got like thunder and lightning, this huge storm. It's spooky. Um, the phones are out. You know, it's all the ripe elements for a horror. Yes. And uh, Jessica's like, I think I hear something, you know, and they're like, no, 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 you don't. And they go upstairs and she, the dog brings in, you know, Scott's bloody hat and Jessica finds his pipe and she looks at Cheryl and she's like, it's still warm. I mean, I just love the way Jessica is messing with Cheryl's head and is so like, yep. like sincere and like buying into these quote unquote clues. And they go into the sealed up room, of course, um, and the lights get, Jessica turns off the lights in this really dramatic moment. And the sheriff appears in the window and crashes through the window and everyone's screaming. I mean, this is like such good horror. It is. And it's a brilliant, like, obviously turning of the tables and flipping of the dynamic so that, you know, Jessica's the one who's perpetrating this on the person who's been, you know, committing this psychological torture the whole time, like, which is brilliant. And, you know... We don't usually see Jessica, you know, kind of uh, engaging in quite that level of duplicity. Yeah. But, you know, Cheryl, if anyone deserves it, it's Cheryl. And I think that, you how know, come, part of what you might Cheryl be saying. If Cheryl was so, was doing all this same stuff, how come Cheryl didn't realize that's what Jess was doing? Well, she might have just, you know, I mean, if you've committed a murder, you're tortured by your own guilty conscience, presumably, at least a little bit. Presumably, hopefully. I mean, it's kind of like the telltale heart, you know? I mean, maybe that's Ugh. what she's, maybe that's what she's, uh, yeah. she's, because she assumes that Scott has not died in the car crash. Yeah. So she's, you know, tortured by the idea that he might have survived. Yeah. And so the idea is the sheriff at the window is is supposed to be Scott or Scott's ghost or something, right? Right. You know, and if you've, you know, spent who knows how long, you know, driving your mother to the brink of madness, you know, it's got to leave some kind of scar or make you at least a little more uh, amenable to being manipulated yourself. It's a bit of a poetic justice, as it were. This is a fantastic episode. It is really. It's as in so many and the other best episodes, I think, is because of how it plays with genre. And in this case, obviously, the gothic uh, horror is mm -hmm. the, the one that it's most immediately drawing on. So I think that's usually where Murder Shirt really shines. Either in the, I think it actually shines either in Cabot Cove episodes or in ones that play with genre like gothic romance or film noir or melodrama or whatever. 
It's funny that you think that because the creators and writers did not think the Cabot Cove episodes were the best. They kind of hated them. Oh, well, they were. They, <laughs> they thought they were sticky, sh- uh, well, schlocky and sticky. Well, they're wrong, so. Yeah, I know, right? But this one is so good and it feels good to say that because I know I sit here week after week and I tell you guys what my gripes with episodes are and you'll be happy to know my only gripe with this one is the little dog isn't in the episode enough. Yep. Completely <laughs> it's a agree. very minor gripe. Yep. It's a brilliant episode. <laughs> Okay, well, that's probably a good place to end then, Teach. It seems like it. So, as always, we want to thank you so much for joining us here at the Cabot Cove Gazette. I am your co-host, TJ West. I'm Bridget Keys. And we will see you next week. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. 